Welcome to a podcast on fire on Fantasia. A Lunar New Year comedy is perhaps not the best pick for an in-depth discussion as they are often designed as harmless, audience-friendly entertainment. They sometimes stand out, they sometimes don't, as the stars of the day uh, hammered up in across those uh, vehicles. But when Milky Way's Waikafai uh, brought 2004's Fantasia to the Lunar New Year screens, it was conceived and made with an eye towards a beloved Hong Kong comedy of the past. Main target being the comedies of the Hoy brothers, Michael, Sam and Ricky. So is this uh, 2004 comedy merely and only for the locals or can Westerners penetrate Fantasia? So let's find out. I'm Kenny B and with me for the first time is the entirety, the entire roster of the East Screen, West Screen podcast team. I've uh, always done uh, chats individually but now... They're both here, and uh, hopefully they'll play nice as they they guest here on the show. So let's start with uh, sunny South Florida's Paul Fox. So say hello, buddy. Hello, and I'm very happy to be here to talk about uh, Walt Disney and Leopold Stokowski, right? Um, 1940s Fantasia. We're doing that one. No? Yeah, yeah. I, I bought the uh, Laserdisc <laughs> uh, collection box set uh, just for this occasion. So um, yeah. it, um, it, it had less. Um, it had it was stuff I didn't remember from my first viewing many years ago in this one. But uh, you know, welcome to Disney on Fire. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and over in Hong Kong, therefore, because we have the entire roster, as I said, is TV's Kevin Ma. Yes, kids, we got a bright, shining TV star with us. So say hello. <laughs> TV star. Hey, hey there. Um, hey there, Kenneth. And uh, actually, I, I should tell you that Paul and I actually hate each other's guts like a lot. We're like we're like mortal enemies and we're just pretending to be friendly on the show. Yeah, they didn't That's talk right. before the recording. They they all s- sat in their so, so to say oral uh, corners and uh, like, guys? Mm-mm. Yeah. yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. like a whole myth, Mythbusters thing. You know, it's like we... We look good on, you know, on the media face, but in in reality, we just uh, complete distaste for each other. Yeah, we're like we're the Beatles of Hong Kong podcasts. <laughs> that makes me Ringo, <laughs> right? I'm I'm Ringo. My Paul, no. Oh my god! You didn't even go there. <laughs> like I'm Paul. I'm I'm totally Paul because. You know. <laughs> Uh, so let's uh, bring some context to the table. We, we, we can all have fun. Like, oh, TV's Kevin Ma. But it, it's, a, it's a big thing because he, Kevin is uh, not just a um, professional uh, subtitler. Is, is that a proper title? Or, nor just a festival goer around the globe and, uh, you know, reviewer and uh, all of that. But uh, when CNN calls, that's a job for Kema. And he was very controversial on TV. <sighs> Let me tell you. <laughs> the stuff they... No, just kidding. Just kidding. So... <laughs> Tell tell the fine people uh, what the, your TV appearance was about, Kevin. Oh, well, that was an interesting story coming out of China about a film called Asura. And it was pulled um, out of cinemas very quickly because, one, it was very expensive. And, two, it did not do very well in the box office. Um, and it's still kind of mysterious. Um, for some reason, the Hollywood Reporter reported it and it became somehow news to the western media organization so i don't know if you guys listened to me talking about it on east screen west screen but um actually right after so because i actually called my friend and my friend referred them to me and then they you know cn asked me to go on to do a little piece um in the studio and then right after i got that call i actually got a call from the bbc world uh, news service the radio um radio uh broadcast to go on and talk about the same story so i did two major organizations in one night in hong kong it was very odd how was it uh be, being on 
camera i don't know if you have any experience as such but uh, i can just imagine it being an isolated sort of experience rather than being uh, flown into a big studio and like 40 40 stage people there ready to 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 serve the pundit if you will I, i can just imagine it being a very isolated experience well, I, I've done TV before, but they were all done through uh, Skype. So the two appearances I made on TV, they were done uh, at home, here at home. And of course, I get complaints from my parents like, you should have worn a shirt. Put on something, for God's sake, boy. <laughs> I, was, I was wearing a t-shirt. That's what they meant. Like, you should put on something with a collar. Sorry, sorry. I, meant, I, meant, I wasn't topless, my God. Um, though the CNN thing was interesting because actually the new show that they were taping was... Uh, a broadcast from Hong Kong. Hong Kong, they have a studio here in Hong Kong. It's the Asia headquarters. So um, it was in a studio, but the thing is the anchor was in the room next to me and I was put into a small little room next door that's like a separate studio. So it seemed like, so I was in a different room, but right next door to where the news was actually happening. Um, so yeah, I was put by myself. The camera was right in front of me, although I couldn't really see it because of the lights. And then the, and I saw the panel right in front of me because that's where the room was that the panel where they were cutting and all that other stuff but of course they closed the doors i couldn't see much of it but yeah i was it's hard not to be self-aware when you're on tv like when you know the camera is looking at you but you don't know who you're talking to but your mind is sort of going how do i look how do i look do i look fat and then of course someone tells you yeah the camera added on 10 pounds and you're like damn it 10 pounds to me if you look know what i look like it it, it's even worse (laughs) like it matters even more why couldn't they put you next to the friendly lady who was interviewing you or her studio space only has space for one? Um, I'm guessing it was only space for one or just the way that they they worked. It was just easier for me to sit in a separate room. Because it sounds so expensive. Like they're, they're, they're probably relaying your signal to like a hugely expensive satellite. <laughs> like millions of dollars of communication costs to this to the next room. Yeah. <laughs> Part of it, I think, is a media strategy to give the sense uh, that the talking person isn't there in the studio. Because if you have somebody sitting at the table in the studio, it's a bit more like a local news show in that sense. Mm-hmm. Whereas yeah. if you've got the talking head like on a split screen and you've got you know their, their green screen behind them and you're showing a different newsroom or you're showing a skyscrape background, then it gives the sense as, oh, this, you know, they're talking to somebody internationally. You know, this is a this is a big deal. So I think part of it is is the prestige kind of image look of that that international news has taken on versus your daily local news, which is you know everybody's going to be sitting at the same desk. Right. On. Yeah, I suppose that was the idea. Um, and it would have been actually I I'm fine with the talking head because I would have been so nervous sitting in the studio like in front of all those cameras. Um, so being in a room sort of by myself, I was more focused. But you know, having because you know the way they t- the way they talk to you is that you have a head you have an earpiece in your ear. But then the thing is the voices were overlapping for some reason because of the feed or whatever. And it, it was like I was trying to not look confused when the voices were overlapping and trying to listen to the question and not look like I have no idea what they're saying. So it was a bit daunting. You, you sort of lose your, your your consciousness and you're just sort of on autopilot when you're answering these type of questions because it's a pre-interview, so you know kind of what to expect. Yeah, so I, I barely have any actual memory of what I've said on air and I refuse to watch the tape. Well, well, it was informative and flawless, Kevin, to be very fair. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. That's good. You know, as you also said on East Screen, West Screen, that yes, this is a story that media picked up, but it's not necessarily 
the world's most unique story that a movie flops um, even though people are gonna notice but it was not like the world was looking at this movie and watched it burn right right it's uh, it's one of a few examples of this kind i mean i if i could bring in i mean this might sound offensive to if, if cnn is listening i'm sorry it, it feels like this sort of a western media they like to point their finger at the Chinese film industry and just go ha ha when something weird or funny happens to it. Like, like I think I said this on West East Green West Green. Right? No one ever gets someone from Hollywood to go on CNN to talk about King Arthur, you know, when it when it flopped, right? Or when that Peter Pan movie flopped. So it, it it's kind of and and as much as I'm a supporter of the media and I am very um, progressive in terms of that. I don't believe in fake news and blah blah. I I do think that yes, it, it shows some of the bias that the Western media has towards towards Asia or towards the Chinese film industry. Well, it's going to be interesting to hear though if this movie gets a life at all, or if they're gonna hide it away for us in an, in as an effective way as they can. I don't know if they're going to re-release it or not, but uh, it, it certainly would be interesting, as Paul mentioned on, on your show, to to watch it in original form or any form to to make up your own mind because it, it has this story attached to it, so there's enough motivation to, to watch it, but uh, who knows if they're going to let it out again. Uh, okay, guys, not uh, like East Green, West Green has been in the media as well. So uh, let, let's uh, <laughs> le, let's uh, celebrate that because uh, this is Paul's turn to sort of uh, shine, even though it's a, a dual, dual sort of uh, spotlight on you because uh, you guys were in the uh, in uh, an article in the South China Morning Post as part of a uh, a list of ten or uh, somewhat of a, it was eight. Eight, 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 eight eight or ten hong kong podcasts uh, to to listen to this summer or tune into and uh, you were part of that list which was very very cool and it was uh, something that i like huge congratulations because it is huge it's based on your work ethic and the type of show you put on whether you sort of consciously think about what you put on but i think it's huge and we also had a little bit of fun because no one could quite figure out why it's said in the blurb that the show features the industry greats like you had guests sure but it sounded like that's the first stop for for the industry greats to uh, to share and east green west green isn't always about that so we, we all had fun about uh, about that little blurb but uh, hey it's in print now it says your show features the industry's great greatest and brightest so you you'll take it right paul yeah i mean you know when you think about it though is it really a good thing because it's just for the summer listening it's not like you know they're recommending us all year all year round, right? It's just just for the summer. You can listen to us, and then when fall rolls <laughs> around, find something else. Screw because... them. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm 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 kidding. Uh, it is a big honor, especially when you look at uh, some of the things we're listed against. Particularly, I, I would point out Hong Kong heritage. Anybody who's interested in Hong Kong history or Hong Kong culture or anything. Um, you know, you should look out look out for that podcast because it's a long running podcast from RTHK, and it's one of my favorites because it just goes into very interesting bits of history. Sometimes, you know, movers and shakers in Hong Kong, but sometimes, you know, just like the background of a particular street in Hong Kong. So, if if you're into that kind of stuff, I mean, even for film stuff, they, for example, I think recently they. Uh, this year they talked to Roger Garcia, who runs the Hong Kong International Film Festival. 
you know, so they're all over the place in terms of what they cover, but it's always about something unique to Hong Kong. So if that's of interest to you, it's something you can check out and it's a free podcast and it's very well produced. So it's, we're really in some really great company there and it's nice to be recognized. Although I'm a bit amiss about a couple of things. First, they talk about the, the, the Renaissance resurgence of podcasting. Is that really a thing? I don't know if that's a thing because I mean, we, we've been doing it, I, I, I think, um, close to, I think nine years this year will be our anniversary, even though we haven't, we've had hiatuses before, as I talked about. But I, I mean, I guess maybe in Hong Kong specifically with Hong Kong based podcasts, there's more now to choose from than ever before. Cause there was a time when there wasn't a lot of podcasts being done in Hong Kong on various subjects. And now you have a range to choose from, which is great. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a big honor as far as the industry players, um, of course, Kevin is one himself. T- and, TV's I Kevin Moffat, have a sex. So. <laughs> you know, uh, of course, our friend Kozo, who guests, and Tim Youngs, you know, they're, but they're all usually behind the scenes with regard to festivals and and writing and working on film festivals and working on film programs, awards shows, and things like that. So, you know, that definitely constitutes in my mind, but it's not like we're interviewing Johnny Toe. Not that I wouldn't want to, it's just that I'm not, somebody who's gonna go out and hound people and if i do lewis comes before to yeah and for a lot of them i think they would be much more comfortable doing an interview in cantonese which sure we could do it i'm you know i could easily have my wife serve as a translator and and we could put out a transcript and everything but i i just don't know if that's something that the listenership would want to hear necessarily. Maybe they would. I mean, write in if, you, if that's something. You know, it's 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 just a, it's just one of those things that I've never felt a really strong urge to go out and do it. And maybe that would be good for the show. You know, maybe that would some, be something we'd explore in the future. Because I know that's something that you've done very well on your show. You know, Podcast on Fire has a great number of interviews with people who've worked in the industry over the years and given some great insight. I just, you know, for me, it's, it's just new territory that I haven't really looked to broaching yet so but i'm very appreciative of mr matthew scott who wrote the article and again it's it's just an honor to be recognized you know in the south china morning post and you know after all this time and you know i look forward to the day that i can become tv's son of tv's kevin ma so there you have it <laughs> well you're, you're you're on your way you are blow you are blown up uh, uh this summer has been good for esws so uh, hopefully autumn there will be an autumn list where you are listed as well and you're a winter list and uh, you'll be relevant uh, in, on either season. all year all year round people you should be listening to podcast on fire so there's no doubt about that cool uh, thanks very much uh, we are going to get through the contact information really quickly for podcast on fire and have guys uh, get to plug uh, their show again and whatever they're up to so uh, this is podcast on fire the flagship show of podcast on fire the network uh, that, that is located on podcastonfire.com and we cover Hong Kong cinema new and old at the best of our abilities sometimes uh, I need uh, people of a little bit more um, and this is not me being funny I genuinely think so a little bit more expert status in terms of uh, how they're clued into the local scene and uh, you know what uh, local uh, flavor is injected into comedies I need people like you to educate me on things like that that's why we're doing Fantasia there's a plethora of references that might need a little bit more explaining so uh, I enjoy talking off 
those movies and uh, older movies and uh, challenging myself by doing interviews and such and uh, you have the backlog of podcast on fire on our website podcastonfire.com along with all our other shows on japanese cinema korean cinema we talk about category free movies do audio commentaries every now and again and bonus episodes are available uh, on the website as well and if you have any favorite Lunar New Year movie, for instance, because Fantasia is one, uh, you can write in and tell us, podcastonfire at googlemail.com. I might as well ask the room, like, uh, pop quiz, uh, top, uh, not top three, but like, favorite Lunar New Year movie of the topic we had uh, from uh, from whatever decade uh, you like. So, Kevin, what, uh, what Lunar New Year comedy or Lunar New Year movie just screams to you like, ah, that's the gold standard. Oh my god, I don't have a gold standard of linear movies. I mean, they all kind of blur into Berlin to one for me. Um, I mean, most linear movies with Stephen Chow is, is great for me. Gosh, uh, 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 Wu Yan is one that I've come to like a lot later, uh, many years later. Yeah, I mean, those are the ones I can think of right now. What about you, Paul? Yeah, I, uh, I mean, this is not in any particular order. It might change, but I'd say Fat Choi Spirit is a big one that I usually watch every year. That's right. Um, yeah. Uh, Wu Yen is great. I love Mu Yen Fong. And also, um, I Love Hong Kong uh, from 2011, which I'm going to talk about in uh, some relevant context for this review as well. I'd say for me, uh, I haven't seen, I, I saw Fat Choi Spirit, but I don't know, maybe it's, maybe it's simply because i don't know mahjong it seemed to me it hinged on that but maybe i should rewatch it and there will be a lot of fun performances there because launching one was uh was all gangster and shit so maybe that'll be fun <laughs> to look back on but uh when i saw it like uh, 2005 or whatever it um it uh, was too dense for me to get for me it's like if happiness is uh, one of my favorites because it's uh, all those stars most of them acting like looms and uh which is appropriate obviously the uh, lunar new year is not because it's a the lunatics <laughs> time of year but they they they, they certainly uh they, they they certainly uh get into the spirit and uh, if happiness uh again uh, we mentioned uh, several johnny toe movies i think here uh wu yan was johnny toe right or at least milky way yes i think it's johnny toe and waikafai so it's yes. relevant to what we're talking about uh, cool. Well, uh, uh, as for the rest of the contact information, our relevant social media links are at the top of the website. Handy buttons to Facebook, Twitter, to our iTunes feed and to Stitcher Radio. And the links to my website where I review a variety of Hong Kong and Taiwanese genre pictures are that's available in the links as well. So let's uh, get on with it. We, we mentioned East Screen, West Screen. So, uh, Paul, you're the plug, uh, plugmeister. So uh, where can they find the uh, South China Morning Post top eight podcasts uh, uh what's the website to go to and now you have a big banner when you reach that site right that plugs you like your stars now south china morning post says nah forget that the banner is go to this link cnn's kevin ma it's uh, all right <laughs> there in the header no. <laughs> um no i you know we are at comcast.com and uh you know you can go over there and find us and uh hopefully you enjoy the stuff we do there and of course, as always, at the end of every show, I do urge people to follow along with Kevin because he does a lot of great work both on his own site and in his professional work. So, yeah, sir. Oh, me. Um, yeah. Well, yes, please listen to East Screen, West Screen. Yay. Uh, I am on Twitter. I am the Golden Rock. That's one word, the Golden Rock. 
Um, I also write for the Cathay Pacific and Cathay Dragons uh, in-flight magazines. Uh, that's Discovery and Silk Road. So if you're flying on those airlines, you could read my work on those. And I'm not even going to bother to try and remember what I wrote this month because it's like a recurring joke now. Every week, I can't remember what I've written this month. Well, well, well fear not because I don't know exactly when this is coming out either. So, so uh, you're not saddled with that responsibility of remembering everything uh, in timely fashion. So. <laughs> yeah. I wrote this year i was productive <laughs> this year take it or leave it that's what i was there you go um i also um run a well i have a website called asia and cinema but i haven't been able to update it much this year because of all the work i'm doing um hopefully that would change next year but the website is asiancinema.com and uh twitter facebook asia and cinema you can also email me at kevin at asiancinema.com would you say that uh, subtitling is becoming more and more part of your um, creative endeavors nowadays? <laughs> yes, well, more than subtitling because um, I also do script translation and publicity materials and things like that. So most recently I've been working on two different film subtitles, but also on a script for a film that's going to be in production. I do at least almost as many scripts as I do subtitles every year. So um, yeah, that's a really behind the scenes stuff that no one really knows but yeah that, those stuff keeps me quite busy excellent well i'm, I'm, I'm always happy to hear it and uh, uh hopefully you got like hong kong cinema stars bingo by now in terms of you've worked on <laughs> this star's movie and this star's movie and so forth like uh, uh have you encountered a lewis ku movie yet uh, that's that's announced and done or or not yet. Well, I've done over her. I did over her free, so I've done that. Right. I've done a Chow and Fat movie. Actually, I'm doing another Chow and Fat movie this year. Um, only has one movie this year, so it's not hard to find out. Um, I've done an Aaron Kwok movie this year. I think I've done the only one I haven't done. Have I done the Four Heavenly Kings? No, I haven't done the Four Heavenly Kings. I haven't done an Andy Lau movie. I haven't done a. Uh, I've done an Aaron Kwok movie now. I haven't done a. I haven't done an Andy Lau movie, I haven't done a Leon Lai movie, and I haven't done a Jackie Chan movie. So the four Heavenly Kings, my next sort of my next bingo to hit, I think. I think I think what people should know though, more than anything else, is that Kevin was actually the actor inside the Meow suit. So right? <laughs> Damn it, Paul. <laughs> oh, on the mocap stage the and all. Is out. <laughs> <laughs> secret is out. <laughs> Oh boy, well uh, that that's a source of amusement for you to find in the East Screen West Screen archives in terms of how far apart Paul and Kevin are in terms of uh, their opinions on the Lewis Koo movie Meow. Yeah, that's the that's the thing that started the feud. <laughs> <laughs> like never mind the Netflix argument, like China and Hong Kong and co-productions, like uh, Meow Man, Meow Damn it. We're, we're all Hatfields and McCoys now because of Meow. It's going to run for generations in our families. <laughs> There have been three feuds in the history of the podcast, as far as I know. Three major, real, like, like sorts of argument. I think one is drug war to Johnny Toe movie. Mm. Two is Netflix. And three is Mal. <laughs> These are worldly matters. Death matter. Damn it. Oh boy! Well, uh, we'll, uh, we'll we'll link to uh, the meow review. I'm gonna try and find it, uh, find it because it's an amusing episode. But in the meantime, we're gonna take a musical break, and after that, we are gonna review Fantasia from 2004, the Lunar New Year comedy from Milky Way's White Cat Face. So sit tight, and we'll be right back. Say man 
And welcome back and the plot for 2004's Fantasia goes as follows and now we're gonna review it and uh, spill some details about uh, what they're referencing and uh, if we think it's any good or not. So let's start off with the plot set in 1969 which uh, is an approximate because I'm not sure so I think it's set in 1969. It's kind of all over the place. A detective agency run by Michael played by Lao Ching-Wan with the help of Sam played by Louis Koo and Fu played by Jordan Chan. They get the genie Harmy Bobo played by Cecilia Chung and her I, I'm not sure this is a correct either. Her boyfriend turned dinosaur bug her cousins, the Chopsticks, played by Johnny Choi and Jillian Chung, all of them end up uh, in their house and they get all of those uh, on their hands. But uh, what they also get is that uh, she is able to uh, grant wishes. So free wishes are granted upon them, but Bobo's magical powers are a little rusty. Or a bit delayed, rather. And uh, the guys, especially Michael, uh, gladly ejects her onto the streets, therefore. And shortly thereafter, Bobo falls victim for Robert Kinn, played by Francis Um. And uh, I emphasize he's played by Francis Um. This guy plays him <laughs> like you read about. And his henchman as well, uh, Robert. In the process of being held up, she loses her chopstick cousins. And uh, they eventually uh, take human form in, in the form of uh, Charlie Choi and Jillian Chung. That's the plot that that's a few of the skits rather because uh, a plot you, you can't argue that this has much of a plot it's a Lunar New Year movie is there any successful and not in terms of uh, its um, intent uh, being a holiday movie well let's go around the room for some short opinions first of all so let's start uh, with you Paul in short uh, what do you think of uh, Fantasia you know it's a fun homage to the Hoy Brothers films and other pop culture aspects of the 60s and 70s um, and I, I guess a little bit extending into the early 80s Lots of pop culture references thrown in. But I do think the film is very much a kind of inside joke. Um, perhaps not as much as something like Eagle Shooting Heroes, but I think for the uninitiated going into it cold, it can be a challenge to get into the material. And I think there'll be some head scratching stuff as to, you know, why are these, you know, actors kind of overacting, doing stage acting in some places. Um, but I do think the great thing about this is that the gags are remixes rather than straight redos, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, some contemporary films will just take a gag straight and redo it completely, um, where I think here a lot more thought and creativity went into it in terms of saying, well, what, what if we take these ideas and we kind of play with them, we change them around, we change them up? Yeah, that's why Wai Kafai has made this and not Wong Jing, I suppose. Uh, there's a little bit more creativity put forth by uh, Wai Kafai, the guy who turned his camera upside down while filming a triad brawl in uh, Too Many Ways to Be Number One, which sounds like the crappiest artistic choice ever, but it's one of my favorite images out of late 90s Milky Way movies, the triad brawl that takes place upside down. Uh, but uh, that's, uh, we'll put a pin in it for now, Paul. Uh, let's uh, throw it over to Kevin. Uh, what do you think in short, first of all, of uh, Fantasia? Well, I have a very interesting history of this film because I watched it back in 2000 and uh, what did you already come out? 2003? 2004? Four, yeah. yeah, I watched it at home in, in the US with my family and we had no idea what was going on because we didn't well, at least I didn't watch those 70s Michael Hoy movies. I mean, the oldest one I think I saw was the one with Leon Lai. 
so we grew up with that, not not the seventies Michael Hoy movie. So I had no idea what's going on. My parents had no idea what's going on. They hate this type of. They were they weren't they didn't like those Johnny Toe Milky Way comedies to begin with because they always thought they were too um, rebunctious, you know, too loud, too whatever for them. So they hated it, and I had no idea what the hell was going on. And then finally, I watched it again yesterday, and um, same thing. And then I watched, I started binging on these Michael Hoy movies. Then I started to understand what it was doing. So I completely agree with Paul that yeah, it's really much. It's really an inside joke. Anyone who doesn't, you know, who don't, who doesn't know any of these Michael Hoy movies will pretty much be confounded and possibly annoyed. Yeah, that's the sort of requisite. Some prep if if you like uh, that is uh, or if you have watched them then rewatched it because uh, indeed uh, Y-Cafi has sort of remade slash is riffing on the private eyes to an extent there's obviously nods to Security Unlimited, Aces Go Places but, but then Western choices like Jurassic Park and the Harry Potter movies so it comes with that sort of baggage that you need to prep with uh, at least two Michael Hoy movies maybe uh, we'll discuss if uh, you guys agree with that or not. It also by the way all of this means that this movie is, is a series of skits strung together by some bare plotting and that's par for the course but there's nothing really wrong with that because it's uh, it's all very um very amusing i think why cafe sets himself apart from other filmmakers working lunar new year comedies because there, there is some actual effort here uh, might not be laugh out loud funny all the time and uh, and if you're not clued into the references then some of the verbal banter and visual humor will be dense but um, if you're prepared yourself with a couple of the michael hoy movies i think you're gonna have a good enough time and the, the actors uh, our game, uh, and, and I think uh, the, the veterans, the thespians, if you will. Uh, no disrespect to Jordan or Lewis Koo, but I think the thespians uh, run away with this movie more than uh, uh, those performers, for instance. Just a brief uh, question uh, off the cuff here. Uh, the, the title Fantasia, uh, uh, does that connect at all, Kevin, to the Chinese title of the movie, or they're completely different, as a matter of fact? Actually, it's quite similar to the Cantonese title. The Cantonese title um, is sort of like a nonsensical fantasia um so the english title fantasia is actually um a quite a good translation of the original chinese title we we, will we'll get to the whole thing of it being a too much of a local comedy or not but i i should also state that reviewing lunar new year movies it for me it's kind of a challenge because you you don't want to be this bully of a critic and pick on a lunar new year movie because it isn't trying to change the world or anything but uh then again, you, you, you have to come to a, a basic verdict, whether or not it entertained or not. And uh, you guys know that the Lunar New Year output throughout the years has varied. Certain eras, it seemed like it could be a slam dunk just as long as you got the stars in. Uh, and some eras, they seem to be struggling, you know. But uh, in 2004, I think this did fairly well. I was following the development and the announcement, and I think it did fairly well at the time. I don't have the figures in front of me, but... Let's get to that question. Is it, um, we, we mentioned it briefly, but I think we can expand on it. Uh, so, Paul, is it, like, com- at least, I don't know, but compared to lo- other lo- Lunar New Year movies, is this more local than uh, the usual Lunar New Year comedies that you're used to watching? Is it, like, too, uh, and, and therefore is it too much of a sort of movie not to crack for, for Westerners in your eyes? I, you know, again, if you don't have the context of, of what the things are being riffed on are from i do think that it's going to be a bit hard to take um i mean there's there's a there's plenty of slapstick humor in here 
again, there's Western movie references that you mentioned, primarily from Jurassic Park and, and Harry Potter, that will be easily accessible. But bridging those to the way they're being done, and then, again, some of the remixes of the jokes, I think those will really fall flat for somebody who's not had access to the other stuff. What, what would be a sufficient prep, you think, if we throw over to Kevin? Like, can you limit it to... Um, a Hoy Brothers movie or two and uh, then combine with the Western elements, then you'll be all right? Or do you think you have to sort of cover the roster of the Hoy Brothers movies to get into what they're doing here, Kevin? Uh, for the last 24 hours, I've been, I've been able to bench three Michael Hoy movies and I had no idea what, what movies Fantasia were riffing off of. I just sort of randomly picked Michael Hoy movies that were available on the platform that I usually use, which is uh, VOD. Uh, so I watched Game Gamblers play. I watched uh, The Last Message and Private Eyes. And I realized Private Eyes and Game Gamblers play actually cover a large um, majority of the humor, of the, of the gags they use in Fantasia. I think you get a pretty much a good number of the of the of the set set pieces in fantasia if you watch at least games gamblers play and the private eyes but i think paul you seen way more than me so you i think i have to um throw over to you to see what else they reference yeah no i think i think if you at least go with uh private eyes and games gamblers play you'll have a pretty good basis um there's uh, a couple gags from security unlimited in there as well um, and of course, the Harmy Bobo character is uh, based off the plain Jane character made by popular by Josephine Shaw. And I've got a lot to say about her maybe a little bit later. But I think, yeah, if you at least see Private Eyes, Games Gamblers Play, plus Security Unlimited, you're going to have a good basis for a majority of the, the gags that you'll see them riffing on. And, and that's probably a good thing that they didn't, that, that they focused on a couple of key movies and key gags rather than trying to cover 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 it all in, in 90 minutes or whatever. So I think that that's encouraging for people who want to, who like the look of this, but but do feel they want to prep, then then you can limit it to, to two or three movies uh, and what have you. And uh, some of the gags you might not understand at all, but it passes by fairly quickly. It's a fast-moving movie and all, and all of that. Uh, so having seen those movies recently, Kevin, and you, you've been a fan of, of them for for a while paul and you maybe you rewatched uh, a few the dynamic between the the hoy brothers at least uh if you think of the private eyes it was always you know michael at the top as the supposed you know leader of the group a bit abusive you know he thinks he's still authoritarian but he often is uh the one that uh, you know is the most clumsy, and he uh, you know he, he often gets it uh, more than anything else. You know he uh, he walks into trouble. So you, you got Lao Ching Wan in that role. You got Jordan Chan in in uh, more of a bit part. He's not in it that much. Uh, also sort of you know bullied, and he, uh, he has that sunken face about him. And uh, and Louis Ku in the middle as Sam Hoy, so to say, impossibly handsome and uh, loves Bruce Lee, and is uh, there for the ladies. So that that was the dynamic from the old movies in a nutshell so how do you think that was transferred if you thought they were focusing on transferring you know the the mannerisms and the type of uh, comedic interplay so uh, do you have any thoughts on that paul in terms of how why recreated or remixed the dynamic between the three yeah i mean it's it's an interesting time to be sure for Lao Ching Wan because during this these couple of years he was into doing some impersonations. So here he's impersonating Michael Hoy in a very specific kind of 
Michael Hoy character that sometimes is referred to as the Mr. Boo character, I guess, in a few of his movies. But he's, I mean, at times he's doing a direct impersonation, almost like a stand-up comedian might do. And at other times he's a bit more natural with it. So I think, you know, it, it works overall. And they, they kind of throw in a gag at the end that I don't want to spoil here uh, to really sort of take it up a notch. But, you know, in the in a I think the film Himalaya Sing, which comes out, I think that was a New Year comedy too, uh, a year later. And, and, you know, there he's doing his take on Mr. Bean. So it's, you know, these couple years for the Lunar New Year's, he was kind of in this mode for impersonation so so was he doing a non-verbal comedy therefore yes what? a lot a lot of non-verbal and a lot of like you know the the, the sort of mr bean <laughs> very brief audible mannerisms and then for lewis Koo, yeah he's lewis Koo. he's handsome but i never really found him coming across as sam he no. just <laughs> wasn't able to pick up on sam's man sam has very specific mannerisms you know, especially if you watch him play in things like Aces Go Places or, you know, some of the some of the later work he does. He's he, he can be an action guy, but he's got a very he's got very specific quirks that I think are hard to pick up on, at least for Lewis. And he's I mean, what he's asked to do, he's fine. He's just, you know, there to look ha- handsome and, and lip sync and pretend to be Bruce Lee. But um, beyond that, you know, I don't think the connection comes across as well for Jordan. He's pretty solid as Ricky, but he's gone for two thirds of the film. So, so. disappointing because he's so <laughs> yeah. perfect for that look, and his look is uh, with the brace and all of that is is straight out of the private eyes. I've, I'm not sure he ever was out of that neck brace in the private eyes. It's been too long, but uh, he, he certainly is that image you remember of Ricky being a bit uh, immobilized, and then in Security Unlimited, uh, I always remember that being joyous because then he uh, comes out on top a little bit more yeah. uh, versus Michael and uh, that dynamic is always enjoyable and Ricky responded well to that so it was not like um, a demeaning sort of role um, for, for Ricky but uh, for, for image alone I think Jordan is, uh, is spot on. Well I've been doing a lot of like because I've been translating some stuff from the film archive about comedy duos and comedic duos and one of them was about Ricky and, and Michael Hoy and the interesting thing is that yes Ricky plays sort of the bullied, the guy that's bullied by the big brother, Michael, and that's that's sort of the dynamic they had on set. But the thing is, Ricky's character always seemed to come out on top in his own way. Like, he, he somehow, by sheer dumb luck, like, ends up being on... So, for example, the bomb thing in uh, Private Eyes, there's a whole thing where um, Michael Hay forces Ricky to test a bomb. And he's like, yeah, of course, you go test it. Of course, it's better that you die than everyone, uh, all of us die. So he goes and tests a bomb, and then the bomb blows up. But it turns out that Ricky, Michael, was the one that gets hit by the bomb, and Ricky was out of the room. So it's always this little interesting dynamic that, yeah, it seems like that Ricky's a weak one. It seems like he's a bully one. But actually, he he often comes out the lucky one. Yeah, they, they continued that even when uh, they were a bit disbanded because they, they still had that dynamic in Chicken and Duck talk um, where uh, where they were working for rival fast food restaurants and things like that. So uh, he grew that sort of irrational hatred for, for Ricky and uh, and all of that. Per, per definition, that's a Hoy Brothers movie, but Sam has a cameo. Uh, he gets electri- electrocuted by by this uh, uh, microphone or whatever in Chicken and Duck Talk. But but uh, for you, Kevin, I haven't watched these uh, movies so uh, recently, these old movies. How do you think Waikafi transferred that dynamic if you thought he was focusing on uh, transferring like that known dynamic between the three? 
Well, it was almost eye-opening to see finally realize what 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 Kafai was going for after all these years of not understanding the movie. <laughs> um, so it was like, oh, okay, now I see why he's doing that. Okay, okay, that's fine. I think the dynamic is pretty well carried. The thing is, uh, I'm sure that Sam had other mannerisms or quirks in other films, but here. In in the Huey Brothers movies, he's almost a straight guy. That he's the handsome guy. He's the one that, you know, he's the reactor. He's the one that reacts to other people's quirks. So it was, I think casting Lewis for that was perfect. He doesn't have to have much of a personality. Ouch. It, it, Ooh, no, intentional. You know, yeah, he's a pretty one. Like like Paul said, he's a pretty one, and he's the straight guy, and and he gets the romantic subplot just like he did in ga- Games Gambler's play, even though Michael is the one who has like two women, right? He has a wife and, and a mistress. But but uh, Sam Sam gets the romantic subplot um, and a little romantic montage, and it's the same here. So I think once you see those films and how those the three brothers work there. And then you realize, okay, that's what they're going for. And I think it carried it quite well. Yeah, because it, especially when it comes to Lao Ching Wan, being a bit more familiar with how Michael Hoy's mannerisms can come off and him trying to be, you know, the, the better one. But clearly he's not. And he gets into trouble because of it. I, I thought that was carried very well and very naturally rather than someone just being pushed onto set and act according to what we showed you on that VCD off screen, right? Uh, act like that, go. It felt they were ready for it uh, to to a fair degree, and it felt like it corresponded, which I thought carried the movie uh, as well. Especially when it, when it comes to Lauching One, and also especially when we get to to Francis. Uh, let me just uh, throw in a little question to the room. You can both sort of expand on it. Uh, in the uh, Hoy Brothers movies, more often than not, if not all the time, there was a theme song attached to it, often sung by Sam Hoy or. The uh, the brothers uh, uh, singing background vocals and what have you, and this movie naturally needed a theme song of sorts that would evoke the theme song from Private Eyes or whatever. So, if it turn to you, Paul, and you guys can riff back and forth because I think you know this. Was this um, a completely new song where they riffed on what is recognizable Sam Hoy tactics in Canto Pop, or is it actually a cover version of something that uh, I don't know of? So, what do you have to say about that, Paul? Um, well, I, I do know that it's playing off the uh, Bungan Batlang song, which I think was the theme from Private Eyes. And Kevin, I think, can give a bit more context onto the the actual meaning of, of that term or that title um, and as how it applies here. I I do know that the, the singer here is not Sam Hoy. It is um, Ronald Cheng. Uh, who, who they brought in to do the the cover. I am not really keen on how much of the lyrics were changed to be more specific to this film. And maybe that's something Kevin can comment comment on as well. Uh, no, they're not changed at all. I mean, you don't oh. mess with those songs. Those songs are very, very iconic. You hear them still today, like in a lot of places. You, Yeah, they didn't mess. It's, it's straight covers of those songs. Uh, I think they did the song from the private eyes. They might have done because they all kind of blurred to me because I just grow up knowing them as Sam Hui songs, not as movie themes. So they all just sort of like, okay, oh yeah, that's another Sam. Hui. Oh, I know that Sam Hui song. I know that Sam Hui song. I forget which movies they're from, but yeah, you really hear at least two or three um, of. Oh, in the credits, they show that there are at least two Sam Hui songs, right? I think, um, and they might be from the same movie actually. 
Yeah, the, the one I uh, de- definitely recognized was that they're emulating the private eyes because it has that ding, 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 yep. ding. Uh, classic sort of 70s riff. Uh, I, I know, I, I love that theme in particular because I've heard the English version of that theme so much, which might be cringy for someone who knows and loves the Cantonese theme to the private eyes, but I think the English theme is so dopey and charming and Sam's English language delivery as as a singer is I think is impeccable so that's all good but when it comes down to it I mean we we, get, we might jump uh, between uh, characters and events in the movie but when it comes down to it if we might as well ask you Kevin is it is it skit oriented in a negative way or skit oriented in a positive way for you because clearly there, there, there's no strong plot here it has some elements and then they pile on funny stuff on top of it and then call it a day because it's the Lunar New Year after all. So is it a good or bad thing that it's skit-oriented? When I watched it without knowledge of the Huey movies, of course it's like, what? There's no stories. A scattershot. But when you realize that the Huey's movies were also equally set-piece-oriented or uh, set and set-piece-driven, they didn't really have much of a plot, that they were always, you know, about going from one set-piece to another then you understand what Waikafa is doing. In that case, is perfectly fine. Like, okay, he was just emulating the story, quote-unquote storytelling style of uh, those early Michael Huey movies, and, and that's fine with me. Because you, you have to bring, uh, you know, maybe not the modern energy, but you, you, you have to bring your skill in conveying tone and, uh, and a sense of comedy, because you can't just place these performers and... and then sit and uh, read the sports section while people perform for you. Like you, you, you have to provide some focus. Like the reason this is funny and amusing is because Wakafa surely comes off as being invested in transferring beloved Hong Kong comedy of the past to to a modern audience, right? So uh, there's clearly directorial effort here too, right? Well, here's here's the thing. I would argue that. This film is very odd for a new New Year film because it's not only you know targeted for a Hong Kong audience, but it's also targeted for a very specific generation of Hong Kong audiences. So people my age, we will watch this and we have no idea what's happening. Anyone that and and you know I'm already considered pretty old by this point. I'm like in my thirties. So anyone that's younger, imagine anyone younger than me not understanding this movie. And people are people who are like my father's age, people who grew up in like who were born in the sixties and then you know or the fifties and grew up with these movies. Would, they are the only people who would understand this film. And that is very odd for a Lunar New Year movie. That is supposed to, you know, Lunar New Year movies are supposed to be um open to all ages, all demographics, you know, family audience, things like that things like that. And suddenly you throw in this this um very specific homage movie that has very specific origins and very specific sources with very specific audience i think even if i understand what's going on now i find it even a bit even more odd that it was a new to new year movie that's interesting that it's a bit restrictive than than usual uh, that, that's a perspective i didn't think of and for, for me in terms of like you, you can't really dislike it i mean it might be a 10 minutes or so too long uh, in terms of a movie you know the the fight with bug might have been could have been trimmed a bit but I've seen much worse examples of uh, movies just centering on set pieces and skits and then calling it a day and not putting forth much effort, um, even if you had the full context going in into it. And that's why I think that there, there is a joy, there is a there is a desire to to pay homage to to something that is very meaningful to to people, and it shows also that why Cafe wasn't you know all 
doom and gloom after a few years of making Milky Way movies. Granted, him and Johnny were mixing comedies and their quote-unquote real movies, because for, for a while Milky Way needed to get some money from somewhere, you know, <laughs> so they had, to, they had to make some other movies rather than their own quirky little kick a paper ball around and call that movie the mission like the, the, you, you, <laughs> you you can't make money from that so they but 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 it's nice still a few years after milky way was solidified that uh, and money was coming in a little bit more in a solid manner that uh, while kai still had, had a sense of humor and a love for for old hong kong cinema because yeah, yeah i think it does show up here so uh so for you paul uh, did you think it was too packed of a sort of skit set piece showcase, or it felt um, just um, easy enough to absorb uh, in terms of uh, in terms of volume? No, for me it was easy enough, just because I knew the context and I appreciated, like I said, that it wasn't just straight retelling of gags, but it was sort of mixing things up. So from one of the films, the characters get you know their arms broken and their legs broken, and there's various physical comedy based around having casts on. And so they play with that. They just don't redo the gags here. Some of the other aspects I'll talk about cousin bug in a little bit. Um, some of the context behind him um, that don't hold up too well because they're doing it. You know, some of the C computer graphics of that era are very dated now, but still, I mean, it was, you know, it, it wasn't off putting, I would say um, in any sense, I guess if you go into this knowing that they're riffing on those kind of set sequences and you are okay with that from the old films, you won't really have a problem with that kind of storytelling here because you know what they're doing. But again, if you go in a, into it without a sense of that kind of narrative storytelling, um, it may not work for you. For example, the, the, the character of Harmy Bobo, uh, played by Cecilia Chung. She's based on the plain Jane character, as I said, made popular by Josephine Xiao. I And she's got, I think she's got three films out under that character. The first two under the Lama Chun name, I've never found on DVD or in, in any media, which is a crime. You'd think Josephine Xiao, you know, her stuff should have been remastered and remixed by now. Um, but the third one is read, pretty readily available. It's been released a couple times, and that's Plain Jane to the Rescue, directed by John Woo. And if you watch that film, that's from 1982. And they're still doing that same kind of set-piece skit kind of format. And it doesn't work quite as well, I would say. I mean, it's not it's not a great movie. Here, I think, at least the the pacing of the skits and the throwing in of the cultural bits of context, if you get them... Work, do work pretty well. Obviously, the Hogwarts uh, reference is not hard to understand, and uh, in w w when you talk of the other reference that might run more deep than you think, and that is the appearance of the chopsticks, because you informed me the other day of uh, what the the appearance of uh, the, the twins, uh, Charlene and Gillian, what what that connects to. I was like, oh my god, they went like it's it's a it's a couple of layers deep. This uh, reference. Yeah. Beyond the Sam Hoy stuff, which is very much on the surface, there's a lot of great sort of musical context here for people who are into music. Louis Koo sings the Sam Hoy song on stage at one point. He's lip syncing. There's a band behind him called Fresh Cream. Which is such a, oh, <laughs> Louis, how could you? <laughs> hey, hey, ladies, we're Fresh Cream. You know, it's, it's, it's not a Category 3 show, so it's okay. Um, but... One of the band members in there is is Tommy Waikalung, who most people probably won't know, but 
if you if you follow Hong Kong film music, he's one of the big composers for Hong Kong films, and he's got credits like Visible Secret and and just lots of really great soundtracks. So he's there. Teddy Robin um, composes the musical score for the film. And as you mentioned, so you've got twins here, very young, early twins, um, Charlene and Jillian, as the Chopsticks. For people who don't know, the Chopsticks were a late 60s, early 70s pop group that sang English songs, English covers. And this was a popular thing for the era. Um, you know, Sam did a number of English covers as well. And so the Chopsticks were this duo, Sandra Lang and, a, and a, another girl called Amina, who got very popular, but they only had about six albums before they split up. But I do know that, like, they went on to have solo careers and things. Um, and they're very well known from the era, kind of the look they had. And so the girls kind of adopt sort of the the beehive look and the kind of style of dress they were known for. It's the, the, the magical aspect of it, of that them actually being Chopsticks and then they get licked by a bad guy so they become bad guys with with those features it, you know that that's a weird kind of gag but it, it worked for me uh in some ways but they sing a song called um i love hong kong right which is or, or kowloon hong kong sorry kowloon hong kong which was not a chopstick song it was covered by it was a song by a group another group called the renettes from 1966 and that's a pretty popular song that's been covered and and, and remixed over the years and that actually becomes the theme song for the 2011 Lunar New Year comedy that I mentioned, I Love Hong Kong, um, sung by, who's the guy, Arif Lee and Mag Lam. And so that becomes the theme song for that movie. But unlike the theme song here, as Kevin mentioned, where they don't change the lyrics, in that movie they do change the lyrics. So, you know, and, and again, it's, it's, it's points of contextual reference here. So there's a lot of musical reference sort of behind the scenes here for people who loved kind of the music of, of that era. And, and Kev, Kevin, you can give a bit of context too onto the, the Sam Hoy title song, right? What that means. Yeah. Um, the Sam Hoy song, uh, Bungan Butler is from the private eyes and that's the Chinese title of the film as well. And Bungan Butler, it, it, it doesn't actually mean it. Like Bungan is like half a kilo for eight learn. Eight learn is sort of a currency. So the idea is that um, it's synonymous with the idea that you earn what you give. So it's like the song is all about like oh, how you know working people they expect to pretty much earn back what they give, but that's impossible. You always get ripped off. You always work too hard for too little money. And that is very, very much the value of Hong Kong, which is oddly relevant even from the seventies to today. It's still oddly relevant in Hong Kong that people are always overworked and never make enough money that giving half a kilo for, or half a gun for eight learn is it's, it's impossible. I mean, that's the ideal, but then, you know, it, it never happens. So that's very much, the, uh, if you watch the opening of the private eyes, you see, you know, people walking the street and you see a guy with, um, you see first someone with a nice pair of shoes getting polished. And then you see the next guy with, uh, patched shoes and he's trying to get his polish as well. But then someone just slaps a tape on it and he's stepping on everything. That's sort of, um, uh, representative of everyday Hong Kongers. And that's how the Hui movies actually appeal to Hong Kong audiences. They, they were very grassroots in how they reflected the value 
of everyday Hong Kongers, and that's why Senghui music was so um, popular. Are they great musically? Probably not. Uh, but they're great. They're very catchy pop songs, especially once you watch a Hui Brothers movies. You can't get them out of your head because they keep playing it in different variation over and over again, right? But the thing is, the thing that 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 makes them relevant to Hong Kongers, that connects them with Hong Kongers, is the way that Senghui uh, writes about the views of everyday Hong Kongers uh, of the grassroots, and that's why. The ways have endured um, their films have endured so well even to this day. I remember Michael has talked about that in interviews that he he wanted, despite being comedy, some kind of social references in their or current social uh, social context. Because I saw an interview that was done a few years after Chicken and Duck talk, so he had that fresh in his mind, and obviously that is referencing that fast food is taking over and. Local, you know, mom and pop restaurants don't have a chance to survive in that uh, in that environment. So, what do you do? How do you adjust to that? And there you have comedy. Like, I'm glad to hear that that's reflected in the songs to a degree as well. That thing is still very relevant today. You know, even though that was sort of sort of a plot point of the '70s, that stuff still goes on today, and it still becomes a plot point of movies. Well, and yeah, and I was gonna say that is the problem with Fantasia. I think at the end of the day, Fantasia was happy to just remix um as a tribute to the Hoy's movies by imitating them but the thing is it didn't carry over what michael hoy was trying to do i mean look at games gamblers play i was watching that today and you watch the ending when i'm going all spoiler here because these are movies from the 70s all right like these are like 40 year old movies you know when michael hoy's character gets arrested you see a montage of him getting carried off and then you see uh shots of the slots slot machines it's supposed to say something about like the dangers of falling into um, addiction to gambling. Yes, of course. In the end, um, it also ends with Michael uh, Samway after winning all these money, after take all this money, he loses it right away on some harebrained scheme. So it's this idea that yeah, gambling is great. You know, people, Hong Kong people love gambling, but the thing is, it also ends with a bit of a cautionary message that like you know, hey, it's kind of dangerous. You know, this is kind of trouble you could fall into. But Wei Kafei doesn't. I mean, he's not a socially Un, I mean, what's the what's the opposite of so, socially conscious, socially unconscious? <laughs> I mean, he is aware. I mean, he is of all people, just as phil- one of the most philosophical scriptwriters in Hong Kong. But he, for Lulu New Year comedy, he just wanted to have some fun, and perhaps that's the problem with Fantasia as a Michael Hoyt tribute is that it never, it never raised the awareness or the social awareness that Michael Hoyt's movies had back in the day. Yeah, you you wonder if that, were, that if that was contemplated or they they indeed settled on the pure comedic experience. So uh, who knows? Because uh, the whole comedic experience also includes actors hamming it up, actors in silly wigs and silly facial hairs and period clothes, and it's a cameo parade. But one person that clinches silly hair or or period being in period clothes and relishes being present and then some is certainly Francis mm, as kin and there's no secret who is uh, emulating to a degree because uh, <laughs> did, did this movie obviously been uh, heavy on plot points from compared to other movies from private eyes and uh, therefore Sekin Enter the Dragons Sekin is the villain from that movie he had uh, wonderful shirts on and uh, he holds up a cinema at one point in the private eyes that happens here but I think there's no better casting than Francis to for, for for such a broad performance that also requires a little bit of 
silly voice work. You know, he can put on a voice a la Ugly Kwan from Young and Dangerous and have so <laughs> much fun with it. And that's what I mean by the thespians take this movie and run with it. Obviously, Lao Wan's uh, Ma Jung scene that involves Francis, that, that's all great. But I, I think Francis is wonderful. He, he, he has a non-verbal entrance because he tries to eat uh, his uh, noodles with a knife and that's not working, obviously. <laughs> and uh, he needs to find chopsticks, man. And I'm not sure because I haven't seen The Private Eyes in a long time and I lost my damn DVD, uh, which gives me an excuse to pick up that uh, box set that's out there. But I'm not sure how much he's emulating Sekin's voice or mannerism or how much he's allowed to go into his own sort of world of like, let's exaggerate bad guy acting. So you you have a fresh memory of The Private Eyes, Kevin. How how much did you see Sekin in Frozen? Is it more Sekin or is it more Francis just uh, having a ball, doing whatever? I, I think, well, Sekin, his style is the villain, right? He's the bad guy. He's the, but yeah, he has a very, like, was it snarling face kind of thing he had going on. And I think that's what um, Francis Ng was going for. And this man, sort of the manner of speaking a little bit, but not the voice. I mean, Sekin doesn't have a particularly memorable voice. He just had a very, you know, tough guy's voice. And yeah, you could hear... Because he was never uh, hamming it up. Sekin, you don't think of like, oh, that bad guy that hammed it up in movies. I I, I was thinking watching Fantasia now that I think Wakafai and Francis, they they were happy to uh, go into their own silly direction. See, as long as, you know, it shows that the performer is game and uh, ready to be there. And he certainly was. But bad guy Ken, the, the idea that what we, we even say bad guy Ken is such like a caricature that um, Dale Wong actually named an entire series called Bad Guy Ken because it was such is such a caricature, it's such a famous caricature of a of a villain. And um, Seth Ken, I think, was playing that on that. Even even so, even his role in the private in the private eyes was riffing on that, having Seth Ken the you know, infamous villain, play your villain. It's already a take on something from the uh, 30s or the 40s or the 50s. For sure. Uh, so Shekin was taking on himself. And so this, this Francis Ink taking on Shekin, taking on himself. And that kind of meta, 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 like double layers of meta is kind of funny. But yeah, you definitely, Francis Ink was definitely hamming it up. And he's definitely is doing the whole uh, bad guy kin, villain kin caricature, rather than a very specific uh, imitation of Shekin, the way that, um, Lao Chengman was doing Michael Hui. Yeah, it came off as that because it's so wild and broad, and that's not my memory from the private eyes that um, that he was wild and broad. And uh, I don't know if his henchmen in the private eyes had noticeable Afro haircuts, but certainly Francis's <laughs> Francis's henchmen do here, and that's the kind of humor that you either go with or you don't. That uh, these performers have a silly um, silly hair and silly facial hair, and uh, these performers do surreal comedy. Like when they leave on the bus, they take the bus stop with them. Did you remember that <laughs> gag? <laughs> that, that was actually quite quite funny. Um, one thing that Francis Ng's character also does is take a gag from Game Scambler's play. Um, there's a, and I still don't understand the gag. Uh, the gag is that the villain would ask his minion, "Have you washed your hair? To, have you washed your hair today?" And the minion would say, uh, "Yes." And then the bad guy would knock him on the head. And to this, I still don't understand why they would ask why he's washed his hair, or something. I, I like, I watch. I'm like, is this like a generational thing? I don't. Know, Paul, do you understand why he would ask? The only contextual thing that I would think is that because they're using maybe grease-based products on their hair, that you know, if he's not washed it, it's going to be super greasy, and he doesn't want to touch it. I don't know. I, I could be way <laughs> off base. That that could be it. 
So what's your thought, Paul, on Francis? Is he going for it in a good way or a bad way? Because he, as good of a thespian he is, you know, dramatically, and he, he can launch into comedy as well. You, he, he can do poorly as well. And he, he, you know, he has picked poorly in the past, as many thespians have. But uh, what do you think of his role as bad guy, Kim, here? No, I think he's great. I think in terms of the impersonations going on, he's probably at the top um, with Lao Ching Wan and, and Jordan uh, close second. Where it really sh- where it really sticks out, though, is when he's doing his Sekin impersonation and then Jillian and Charlene, the two chopsticks, are imitating him, imitating <laughs> Sekin, and they just can't pull it off. They just... Uh, <laughs> they're too young. They're, they're, they're too pretty. They just can't do it well and it's like a night and day kind of thing for me yeah so i think that really you know stands out but uh, you know he's great and it's it's fun to see him if you know uh, you know the actor and and you're familiar with stuff like um not just enter the dragon but stuff he's done before you know it's great to see francis do a take on it with regard to some of the gags i mean the bus stop gag was good the one gag that didn't really work for me in the in the movie was the mahjong gag i guess if you know this is why i, I like fat choice spirit because they do know mahjong a little bit here it's just completely unrealistic because <laughs> what what is happening is that is that you know he doesn't want to be accused of cheating because he's been winning so the louching one character he's pulling tiles from the main board that everybody has to pull from and when he pulls it he realizes that you know, so each tile can only have four. There are only four of the same kind of tile, and that can help you make a set. And so Francis Zim's character has just made a set of, I think it's the the West tile. And so he pulls another West tile, which should be impossible. And then he looks, and the back of the tile is a different color. So it's from another set, because I think they're working with a blue set, and he pulls like a yellow-backed uh, tile, and then he keeps pulling the same West tile and everyone is a different color. And he's like shoving them in his mouth and he's like, <laughs> but it's impossible because when you are pulling from the main tile on the main board, everybody would see that it's a different color, right? <laughs> so there'd be no question that something is wrong with, you know, the, the mix of tiles. Cause you'd clearly see that there are different colors mixed in. That's the way the game works. So, I mean, it's, it's funny to see the physical side of it when he's like stuffing them in his mouth and everything, but for somebody who kind of understands Mahjong, it's like, ah, come on, really? I mean, the bit of rice covering <laughs> the, the, the dots in, <laughs> in, in Fat Choice Spirit was a better gag overall. Yeah. Uh, but again, it's, you know, it's easily, I, I give him a pass because, again, it's a New Year movie. Well, that was that was a gag that actually went. That was a set piece that I thought went way too long. Like you said, it's completely unrealistic. And how could no one see that he has things stuffed in his mouth? Like, yeah, there's not two tiles in his uh, mouth, listeners. I think he uh, in the movie it's uh, about six or seven, and uh, then he has to start throwing them over his shoulder uh, very, yeah. very casually. And I mean, that's what I attach to this uh, sort of smoothness of Lauching Wan's performing it and and being directed. Obviously, that. He, he he needs to come up come up with so many variations of discarding things without anyone noticing, which is in itself very unrealistic. Even when you're throwing stuff, because you're you're sitting so close together when you're playing that to see someone like 
move even slightly in a different manner compared to when they're playing you would notice that but it's a comedy so whatever but uh, it's uh, I, I i i do like louching ones um how he plays the panic of like it's not working it's not working i'm throwing them away it's coming back throwing them away it's coming back well i love that that one action where so he runs out of tiles and like he has nothing in his hand and he has <laughs> He has to keep doing that one tile. Like he has to make yeah. like he has multiple tiles, but he's doing one tile behind his arm. I actually that's yeah, my favorite. that's that's really good visually. That works really well. Um, I do think that the one gag that I is probably my favorite of the movie that's not really related to other gags from old films is the twenty twenty sequence. So what ends up happening is that because of one of the wishes he makes, Jordan Chan's character <laughs> he he wishes to meet a Hong Kong astronaut, the first Hong Kong astronaut to go to the moon. And so he ends up getting sent to the moon and the astronaut is Chung Tat Ming. And, yes. and it's, it's, it's a combination of Chung Tat Ming's deadpan performance and the music, which I guess, as I said, is being scored by Teddy Robin, which is very quirky for that scene. And I think they're doing a little bit of overcranking or, or they're doing something to make it, you know, look like slow, lower gravity and Jordan Chan is just goofing it up and, you know, shaking his hand on the moon. And <laughs> it just, it, it made me crack up laughing every time I watch it. And it's just such a weird, you know, stupid scene. But it's really well done somehow um, in terms of the comedic beats and the timing and, and, and the music. It's a more realistic sort of reaction, if we're talking realism, that that chunk that me doesn't go, wah, and uh, reacts to it, like, what the hell are you doing here, Robert? This is not the reality I'm used to. Is he possibly an alien? And all he can do is sort of be shell shocked, which was nice to see um, an underplayed reaction. His comedic style of performing, Chung, is it, it works sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. It depends on who he's paired up with, I suppose. But uh, I was glad to see uh, him uh, just so, sort of reacting to it non verbally, which is always nice to see in a Hong Kong movie, especially a Lunar New Year movie, to have some subtlety, damn it. Um, so so yeah it, it's a it's a big old gag and uh, you know I, I i won't go into it but i guess lewis's big scene is is not the most inspiring one because anyone can make a parody of bruce lee and he gets you know bruce lee's powers if you will the the joke which i kind of don't want to spoil the the, the why it works for me that joke is that um it just turns chaotic for lewis's character he thinks he's got it made because he's now he can fight like bruce lee and then 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 he goes off rails after that which was funny to me and a, a little signature sequence within this movie for lewis to have rather than just appear pretty in in every scene so i appreciated that uh, so surreal nature to the comedy because the the whole wishing aspect of the plot means that um it's gonna go wrong uh, a bunch of times so thought that was uh, all, all acceptable even though oh yeah teddy is scoring like it's into the dragon okay got it got it i understood it not fresh but he's uh he's uh he's riffing on something that's uh that that's good and iconic even if not in hong kong necessarily uh i don't know how into the dragon is part of like the cultural discussion rather than you know just bruce lee's uh local movies but uh, that's uh, something we can find out another time i suppose uh I won't share any other major notes. I have some minor highlights, I suppose. But uh, th- uh, even the kitchen fight is something that well, it's a it's a reference, and then they expand on it uh, big time. But uh, I, I I just think it's fully acceptable as a Lunar New Year 
product and uh, hearing that kevin said that it riffs a, a bit more on games gamblers play it makes me want to revisit that to pick up some more points because i didn't really really know that and remember that so i think there's a case for uh, fantasia can be a bit expanded on if you feel motivated to do so you know, literally do it a bit of homework but uh, hey you can watch some um, comedies as homework and I don't think that's uh, the worst thing in the world so I think that that's the end of my proper notes but I'll, I'll, I'll save some highlights uh, for for the end of it so I'll, I'll, we'll, let's go around the room again and talk of whatever you like so uh, Paul anything any sequence you want to point out good or bad in terms of uh, you know the kitchen fight is it uh, is it um, an, a nice update of uh, what happens in a private eye so is it or, or does it go on too long for me it uh, overstays its welcome a little bit of a kitchen CG fight Again, because of the era of the CG and the way they were doing green screening, so it kind of shifts over the color tone, it doesn't hold up super well, but the way they kind of reverse the gags around, I think it's fine and funny. Um, the, the character itself may be a bit unapproachable for some people who are not familiar with with who that is, so Cousin Bug, or as he's referred to in Cantonese, uh, Lapsap, Lapsap Chong, which means like litter bug or Garbage Bug, was an actual government PR character created um, in uh, 1972, I think, was when it was first released. And this was a, he kind of looked the same green with kind of red warts and two big teeth. And this was something that was done as a sort of keep Hong Kong clean thing. They used to, I think they originally set the character on fire or blew him up or something, and then they had these. <laughs> they, they had these. Uh, like, keep Hong Kong clean, otherwise we'll set him on fire. Yeah, the, the the original promo was I think they blew him up, and then they had these ladies with brooms, you know, these kind of PR girls with brooms. Holy hell! Uh, what were they called? Like uh, lady super cleans or Miss Super Cleans or something, and they would have to clean up, you know. So that was that was the, the original skit, and he's come back in various poster campaigns and things over the years. And I think most recently they actually rebranded him completely. They turned him into a dragon. His name is Atai or something like that. Um, and this was a couple years back in, I want to say, 2016. And now he's a much more cutesy kind of cuddly character that you could go out and buy a toy for or something. Um, but here, <laughs> yeah, he's supposed to be, you know, he's he's representative of that PR campaign character who's been around for decades and part of the sort of the cultural consciousness um, that's outside of the Hoy Brothers films for the time that that they're tapping into. That might be something that people are kind of like scratching their head going, you know, what, what is this thing? But then they throw it, throw in the, the sort of Jurassic Park thing and people be like, okay, I, I get that now. The great thing though, is that Cecilia Chung's character, Harmi Bobo, keeps, you know, referring to him as her cousin, but that he's actually her boyfriend. And Kevin can perhaps explain a little bit of the the way that comes across in subtitles as is why would your boyfriend be your cousin? Because that's very weird in Western culture. Not so weird in in because of naming conventions in in Chinese culture. Um, but who he ends up being because she keeps saying, oh, he's so handsome. He's so handsome. Girls can't stay away from him. Um, that's a great thing that I'm not going to spoil, but it's worth the price of admission. And it's an official, it's an official thing because there's a, there's a, there's a mention in the credits, right? So yeah, he, um, he Kevin, wields Kevin... that power that he must be thanked. By the way, before we throw it to Kevin, like, weren't they sort of pissing on the image of Litterbug by having him smoking and shit? Or like, it, it seems like, like, what are you doing to our beloved 
character. Like he can't be doing adult things like smoking, or or no one really cares well, about he, that, that political he's correctness. He's the bad guy. He's he's the Tar- bad guy originally. Yeah. All right, Litter gotcha. Is the bad guy. You can't gotcha. tarnish his, his image anymore. Smoke and do smack and LSD and <laughs> <or> whatever. <laughs> <laughs> well, remember there are two of those happening in in the film. Uh, the Jordan character, uh, Ricky Hoy character, runs off because his quote-unquote cousin, Jane Jane Lamb, get, went crazy from studying rockets, and he has to go and rescue her, <laughs> and, and she he has a huge crush on her. So, yeah, yeah, the cousin thing is much more normal in the 60s, partly because naming conventions, yes, because someone who is very distant-related can also be used the word cousin. I think the same way in English, right? Like someone who's maybe your aunt's aunt's nephew or something like someone you're not even related to by blood can be your cousin right kind of uh, yeah but but it's yeah. not that common not not quite as common yeah it could be like twice third four times related. it could be removed multiple times and still be called your cousin so um i guess especially in that remember um the andy Lau movie in the 80s um for uh one Wai's first film um as tears go by is that the one yes tears go by maggie chun is actually andy Lau. the character is andy Lau's cousin also, well, but also I think like twice removed or three times removed, but she still she still went out to you know she stayed with Andy Lau's character because he's her relative because he's the only one that she can rely on. So yes, he also fell in love with her, her his cousin. Um, so yeah, the cousin thing not so weird in the sixties, I suppose. Even um, Golden Chicken Two, uh, Sandra and uh, Chucky Chan player character is actually um, Sandra Un's cousin as well, quote unquote cousin. Um, so it's not a um, weird thing at all, I guess, in the 60s to be in love with your distantly related cousin, I suppose. Yes, by the way, I, uh, we didn't touch on it. Uh, I have I, seen Playing Jane to the Rescue once, and I, I don't think it made a, a dent in me as such, uh, but I wanted to see it for for John Woo's sake and for completion's sake, and I love Josephine. But uh, how, how was uh, that experience for you, Paul, uh, to see Cecilia take on? that character was it you know it's tolerable it's lunar new year or, or did cecilia do anything with it that stood out that performance yeah here's the here's the weird thing with this movie so in plain jane to the rescue um uh, ricky hoy co-stars in that as a as a character from her background who got like affection for her and he's trying to you know chase her throughout the film and here so the ricky hoy surrogate uh, jordan chan his girlfriend, which is played by uh, Christy Chung, Christy, Christy Chung, Chung. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, is named Jane Lamb, and that's the plain Jane character's name. But she is not the plain Jane character uh, in this. Uh, that is, of course, Harmy Bobo, who's got the look, even though she's kind of wearing for a while Harry Potter robes. But then she she takes on some of the sort of the normal plain dumpy attire that uh, you would see uh, the plain Jane character wear. Yeah, she kind of does a few mannerisms here and there, but a lot of it's more about the look with the thick Coke bottle glasses and keeping pushing them up on the nose and things. And I, you know, it's it's weird because the character has, as, as I said, such a is kind of rooted in the the cinematic consciousness for a lot of Hong Kong people. I mean, she served as the basis for I think Zoe Shun's character in uh, Tsui Hark's All About Women. Right. Uh, from 2008. And so she, you know, she's something that people recognize, but her earlier films have never been given a, a decent treatment. I, I think the John Woo version 
is okay. Um, it's it's not great by any means, but it's a great character uh, to be sure. And it, again, it's 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 all about the skits. And here too, I think if you look at the Sam Hoy, Ricky Hoy, Michael Hoy movies from the era, they came from skits, right? They had what was the the TV show, Kevin, the Hoy Brothers show or something? The Hoy Brothers show, yeah, 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 yeah. And, and that was basically a kind of SNL or Laughing thing that started in the early '70s. So they really kind of cut their teeth in terms of screen performance on TV, doing TV style skits. And so I think you see this kind of humor and pacing carry over into their movies, and that that continues on as their humorous style until I want to say uh, the later stuff as they get into the mid '80s and beyond. That discussion of performance, I I I think you come around to the fact that sometimes when you have a cameo parade of young and old some persons are just not going to be naturally a natural fit but they're going to be amusing enough for the purpose of the Lunar New Year movie you, you talked about the twins doing those uh, you know hot faces and you know <laughs> it's it, it's more forced and then sort of the veterans I think can be clued into it a little bit more based on maybe knowing the references in question a bit more than a younger generation or simply being better uh, being more veterans, being more, uh, you know, apt at mixing genres and what have you. So uh, I think that there's a mix of reasons why the veterans stand out a little bit more in, in their roles with uh, Lauching One and Francis and um, and Jordan. So yes, what else, guys? Kevin, anything else you want to bring to the table? Well, I want to complain that I mean, to if you walk into this movie cold, it's almost too much homework for you to have to do. Because in addition to games, gamblers play, in addition to Private Eyes, I think we already mentioned so many different references. Uh, for example, Plain Jane. Actually, the film I think the films were the result of her her character's popularity on TV. I think she was um, created. As part of another sketch show, I think it was. It, I think it was Enjoy Yourself Tonight. I'm not entirely sure, but you know there were a lot of those sort of skit show that was on on TV at the time, and I think that's where P- Plain Jane came from. So, and you also have to know about Chopstick Sisters. Then you also have to know about Sam Hui's music, and you have to know about Litterbug. You also have to know about those other that guy whose cameo we can't mention because of a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, you know it's fair, and and then you come back to the point. To where that, that that Hong Kong movies have been very approachable globally, and and then the Lunar New Year period and the various eras, they they represent quite a fascinating insight for me as a Westerner to see if they are so completely incomprehensible because they're doing gags with a local flavor, and as they should, uh, it, it comes with a a bunch of fascination. But but then, as you said, if you want to pursue something, it really looks fun maybe the motivation to bone up on on your movie knowledge and what have you might not be there but i i would kind of recommend it uh, in a way because it, it is rather amusing to see these um likable actors especially the veterans uh, act this out so you know projects are fun have <laughs> watch hoy brothers movies and then fantasia like make, make it a year-long project or whatever and then and come back to fantasia yeah, I, I think I think there is a sort of a, 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 a warning that I do have to sound out. If you're trying to watch Quake Brothers movies, that I find them review proof today to watch them today because I mean they are such. It's hard to understand the impact that those films had on Hong Kong comedy because we 
have seen so much Hong Kong comedies from today, not knowing the impact that the Hui brothers had on on the on the films today. So we're watching it. Yeah, it's dated. Yes, it's scattershot. Yes, yeah, no plot. Um, yeah, it looks oh blah 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 blah. But the thing is, they were so new at the time. They were they are inventive. They are very creative, and and they really broke the mold and they broke in a, a sort of a whole new genre. And it's hard to understand or to recognize why those were considered great films or why they're considered great films in the context of Hong Kong cinema, and why they needed to be paid tribute to by Y Kafai. So even watching it today, I feel like it's impossible for me to to watch it with sort of a critical mind because I grew up all my life knowing Michael Hui is a legend, knowing that his comedies are legendary, knowing that that all those stuff were classics. So I, I can't hate them. So I watching it consciously, um, watching it back consciously, and then watching Fantasia again, it would be it's it's all this one big remix and one big tribute to these things that are pretty pretty much review proof and yeah they artistically they aren't great films but but then you it's hard not to recognize or you have to recognize that these were very much breakthrough films the time they were made and they made a huge impact in hong kong um hong kong film industry um it was at a time they re- he revived cantonese cinema so um i can't have an opinion on michael hoy's movies because i know even before going in that okay i'm watching a classic i'm watching a really great film even in my heart i may not i may not you know recognize it as much as much i would watch a new film order or a film that i haven't seen i think walking in with that kind of in mind would help when you're doing homework for the Hoy Brothers movie. Just know that these films look dated. They are supposed to look dated because they were very much products of their era and products of the time. Yes, it was okay for Michael Hoy to have a mistress and a wife and still be the hero of the film. <laughs> um, because you know, he's a dude. It, yeah, Michael Hoy is the quintessential dude at the time. The dude who gambles. The dude who treats his wife crappy. Yeah, who treats wife so crappy that his wife doesn't even know when he gets out of prison anymore, um, or or yeah, like that. So knowing that, walking in knowing that, it's don't even bother trying to have a critical eye on Mike Hoy's movies. Just watch it as sort of like you read history book or sort of the way you 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 know that it's a very important film that you know is a very good film, even you may not think so, but you recognize that these were very um, groundbreaking films. I think too, uh, along that same line that that Kevin's talking about with regard to the the gags and the context, with this film, as I said, you know, talking about that kitchen sequence, right, the fight scene between Cousin Bug and and Lao Ching Wan and Louis Koo, I mean, they remix the gag. So if you haven't seen the original gag, you're probably going to go, well, that's kind of weird. Why are they doing that? So you have to have seen the original gag to get the remixed gag. But to me, that is a level of creativity that's, again, deeper than just copying. Conversely, you mentioned the Plain Jane film, uh, John Woo's Plain Jane film. There's a there's a gag in that um, where she has gone to be a stand-in at, at, for some film or TV drama, and she gets the snot beaten out of her by the actor, right? So she goes in for the and stands in for the lead actress for the action scene, and he smacks her around. That is exactly copied in I Love Hong Kong, where Sandra M goes and, and gets a job as a as a stand-in, and she gets beaten by Wayne Lai. Um, and it's it's almost an exact recreation of of that scene rather than a remix. I mean, it's calling back to that film, 
people who know the Plain Jane film are going to say, yeah, I've seen that. But it's the same gag. So from a Western standpoint, that's more approachable, right? Because it's the original gag. There's, It's okay if you know the context, but you don't need to know the context because they haven't remixed it at all. That makes it like no, not all sections are are impenetrable therefore uh, that's for sure because the the big kitchen fight in fantasia might just come off as well it's a big kitchen fight with tons of elements but i appreciated the reversal of um, the some of the visual humor from the private eyes that it's uh, riffing on so we'll, we'll we'll leave some things open for for surprise including the the uh, the or some of the cameos in the movie uh so some of which are still i <laughs> also i was for some reason very clued into who all the young ones or all the new ones were like ah that's the boys of shine right yeah. that's boys <laughs> ask me today boys. and like oh that's the girls from or the boys from and i'm like i don't know but for some reason i i ah, look at that it's those two they always go they go together everywhere <laughs> you know the boys are manning the switchboard and all of that so <laughs> for for some reason i still remember that because i've followed the industry a little bit closer and uh and, and and also especially when some of those young actors were put into more challenging materials and things like that so uh so 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 the cameo parade you you i recognized a fair few here most of them have split off too now. I mean, like, I don't think Shine, I don't know if they still do stuff together. Jillian, of course. Shine are back together. Char- Charlene, are they back together? But you Shine have, you, I mean, together, yeah. you have like Wang Yonam going off and doing pretty strong independent roles and stuff, um, you know. And it's so it's interesting because this was back in a time when they were kind of all new and fresh on the music scene. So, you know, they had to be together and everything. Yeah, and the boys, the boys have mostly split up. It's a very interesting thing because hong kong entertainment industry re- evolves so quickly and people come and go so quickly it was like boys holy crap <laughs> like yeah wow. we were we were, um, we were then, talking yeah. sort of off off air on the recent episode because i was trying to remember because kevin was reviewing uh the new alan tam wi- the, the the winners the winners uh, movie. biopic yeah, yeah. and i was like you know, because he was explaining, I was like, that sound, you know, it sounds like it's got all this typical musical up and comer story beats. And what was the film? There was a film from a few years ago and I couldn't remember it. And I had to go and dig it. And it was called Lives in Flames. Right. And it had a bunch of new it, it was about a band that's a real band. But then it had some other industry people in it, too. But I could not remember that 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 film because, you know, these bands, they come and go so quickly these days. Yeah, and then and I realized it was such a crappy movie, and, and I forgot the band. Ex- I remember the band existed. I totally forgot the film existed, and it was total crap. And that's what I remember. They can't all be Spice World, the classic that is Spice World. <laughs> By the way, I, I should. I'm looking at the release schedule for the year that Fantasia was released, um, because Fantasia was actually the second highest film, uh, second highest grossing film that year, um, behind Kung Fu Hustle, of course, of all movies. Hmm. But that turns out that Lunar New Year was especially crappy because its opponents or its competitors were Magic Kitchen with Sammy Chang and what was this one called? Um, the Donnie Yen um, twins thing. Protégé de la Rose Noir, which mm. uh, was kind of the second week of New Year. And of course, that immortal classic, Silverhawk. Mm. Oh my so god. Suddenly it makes sense why Fantasia was quote unquote a hit. It made twenty five million Hong Kong dollars, which is okay, but 
nowhere near the top of what you know Johnny Toe and White Coffee movies were making at that at the time, but still, it was a top-grossing film of that new New Year. And then, and, and like Kung Fu Hustle was like sixty seventy million or something. And then, yeah, but was, yeah, but that was Christmas. So, so that was way later later in the year. But it started out that year started out with. Fantasia, Magic Kitchen, Silverhawk. So that was an interesting year to say the least. Jingle Ma hasn't got a grip on uh, on the Lunar New Year audience or a grip on anything really, including filmmaking skills. They all can't, they can't all be from Vegas to Macau, right? <laughs> I'll do the availability next, but uh, anything else you want to share before we wrap this uh, wrap this one up? So, uh, Paul, what about you? No, I mean, again, I think if this is not something that you've been exposed to or you've seen it and you were kind of head scratching because you haven't seen the old stuff, I definitely recommend to go back and watch some of the older films because uh, they're all great films for the most part and, and then revisit this. Well, I would say that, you know, Fantasia, you can at least explain it when you do certain homework and you watch certain films, but nothing, nothing at all will ever explain Himalaya Sing. <laughs> I, I remember that because we were all sort of, riding high on like what well, Kai's movie from last year that was great the next one it's also comedy it's also got those guys and boy oh boy it apparently is not at all good <laughs> you know it seems like so, such a high concept movie to uh, I don't know if they went to location in India but they uh, did they shot in India I think yes hell. yeah I just remember that the the political correctness factor kind of came into play with uh, Ronald Chang playing, what was he, he was supposed to be Tibetan or something. And I remember South China Morning Post or one of the papers actually went out and they did a screening with some people from the area who were living in Hong Kong. And they all said it was fine. They didn't feel offended or anything at all. So No, it wasn't the offensiveness of it that got to me. It was just the sheer lunacy and lack of funny that got to me. Yeah, he's um, he's he's apt at um, directing a variety of movies, though. Why can't I? Thankfully, but uh, I don't know if he ever got good at light affair until things like "Don't Go Breaking My Heart," because I've heard decent things about it. But um, he started to went for some challenging material. I, I for some reason I always wanted to, but I never pursued movies like "Written By," but also didn't pursue movies like "The Shopaholics" because it was well. Maybe, maybe not, but I don't wanna. Um, so uh, you know, very director and uh, comedy-wise, too many ways to be number one. Probably my favorite because it's so bad shit crazy and it's uh, Hong Kong riffing on Run Lola Run and sliding doors, but doing it their particular sort of. Um, if Wong Kar Wai wanted to be the artistic director, but also wanted to do a comedy at the same time, it kind of merges those worlds, and I, I enjoy too many ways to be number one for for that reason, but. Uh, as for availability, a little bit difficult to get Fantasia. The, the Mayar DVD released in Hong Kong, I couldn't find it listed as in stock or in print anymore, and it hasn't been upgraded to Blu-ray seemingly anyway. Again, I couldn't find a listing. Uh, second-hand copies seem sparse too. I could only find a fairly pricey Tyson edition of the film for, for the US market, presumably. It seemed to replicate the technical specs of the Mayar DVD, though, so if you, if you find it, it should be the same in terms of picture and subtitles so uh that begs the question the uh, mr professional uh, kevin ma how how annoyed were you at the subtitle job that they, they did for fantasia i was like nope nope wrong 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 or, or did you uh, turn off your professional uh, sense and just watched it 
it was very bad. <laughs> English subtitles were very bad. And I wish I could have redone the film the whole time watching. I'm like, no, that's not how you. No, 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 no. It was like kind of half out of Google Translate before Google Translate existed. So, because um, I know a friend who did Johnny Toe films, and I and I and I checked the credits. I was like, I hope it's not her. I hope it's not. Oh, thank God, it's not her. Like, yeah, she didn't do the subtitles. So. Because I know that she actually speaks English, unlike the person who did the subtitles of this film. <laughs> Kevin, I have a question on one aspect of the subtitling, because they, they keep referring to Harmi Bobo as a wizard, but in the Cantonese, they're saying she's an immortal, right? Like, no, they I mean, say... she's a sun scene, right? Sun scene, is that, is that the translation for wizard? Sun scene can also be a wizard. I mean, it's similar, because sun scene is someone who, like, practices magic. Okay. Sun scene is kind of like a god fairy. Right, um, right. And mortal. It could be all kinds of things, but wizard would not be far off, no. Is that, I mean, is that what they use in the, do you know, because I haven't seen the Harry Potter movies, the, you know, the, in with the Chinese subtitles on. Is that what they use for, like, the Harry Potter characters, that terminology, would you know? Uh, they would not use sun scene for wizard, as far as I know. Mm. Um, I guess that wouldn't it wouldn't translate the same way, but especially to kids. But uh, I haven't seen Harry Potter with Chinese subtitles, or I don't mm. remember seeing Harry Potter with Chinese subtitles. But they definitely wouldn't use the same translation. But considering Harry Bobo's grade or pay grade, um, <laughs> a wizard would not be a, would not be a wrong translation for what she was. All righty, educated and uh, done some. I think uh, I've, I've gained some insights and some, um, you know, ad- additional aspects added to my memory bank. So I, I might return to Fantasia after getting that damn Hoy Brothers uh, box set uh, that I uh, didn't buy back in the day. But I think you can still get it on Blu-ray if you if you want to get all of those like ga- games gamblers play and privatize. They're, they're in a Blu-ray set in Hong Kong, uh, probably upscales from standard definition. But if there's no other option out there, then then that's fine. So the, those movies are readily available. But uh, let's uh, finish this one off. And uh, for all your Podcast on Fire network needs, you simply have to go to podcastonfire.com. All the relevant links uh, for social media and the relevant links for this episode are available in the show post and on the website so i'll keep it short for now and let the guys uh, do the plugging so uh, don't be shy and plug all your uh, recent uh, recent merits including uh, including appearances in media and what have you so let's uh, let's go to ball and see him uh, like prop himself up like yeah bitch i was in south china morning post you better believe it like uh, go for it paul like uh, like a man yeah, I, there, I was in the uh, convicted felons section. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you know, I'm going to defer to my partner because I always do the closing out for our show, East Screen, West Screen. So let me throw it to Kevin let him do it. Oh, wow. I, I, I don't practice this, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so we're East Screen, West Screen. You can listen to us on uh, Comcast.com. You can find us on Facebook. We're www.facebook.com slash East West West. S. You can listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or anywhere that you listen to your podcast. I don't think we're on Spotify, though, right, Paul? No, 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 we're not on Spotify. We're on Stitcher, okay. that's right. We are on quite a few places where you can find your podcast. Um, yeah, anything else? Are we doing the fa- Are we doing the personal plug now, or just the show? You're, you're, you're the honorable co-host, and you've educated us so much, so you've earned at least half an hour of plug, so go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, quick, quick reminder, uh, quick uh, reiteration of what I've said before uh, i'm on twitter i'm at the golden rock that's where i am mostly these days i also i'm also on cathay pacific and cathay dragons in-flight magazines uh, discovery and silk road 
subtitling wise, I have a film called Suburban Birds that's traveling the festival circuit right now. It was at Locarno this past week, and then it will be at the uh, Five Flavors Film Festival in Poland later this year. I also have Project Gutenberg starring uh, Chan Fan Aaron Kwok. That looks good, that movie. See what I did there? Thank you. Um, right now in Hong Kong cinema is Men on the Dragon, starring Francis Ng and Jennifer Yu uh, as directorial debut of Sonny Chan. And yeah, I'm also working on a couple of subtitling projects, but I can't really review them yet. But they are slightly weak, slightly related to the film that we're talking about today. Okay, so I can say that much. Fantasia 2, yeah. finally. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, but that's it, yeah. Am I remembering correctly that you worked on the subtitles for, and uh, never mind what you think of the movie, folks, uh, this is all because I admire his productivity. Uh, Did did, did you work on the subtitles for A Better Tomorrow, the remake, or did you just do script script things? No, that was A Better Tomorrow 2018. I did that, yes, without... By the way, if you spot any errors, because I didn't watch the film while subtitling it, so I just got the dialogue list, and and yeah, I subtitled that. This year, I also had uh, Monster Hunt Two, which has uh, Tony Learn. Yeah, not too many subtitling projects that are out yet this year. I also have a Chinese film called Fangirl's Romance, starring starring Zhou Dongyu, but that's not out yet. There's also a Bye Bye Her film called um, A City Called Macau that's traveling the film market circuit but it hasn't it's not gonna it hasn't premiered anywhere yet uh but yeah those are a couple of films i've done this year because it was cool like um i mentioned about it tomorrow because um you know presumably you don't uh, interact a lot with the crew and certainly not with the cause but uh, you you had a, like a q a with uh, director ding sheng at one point Yes, I actually hosted a panel with him in Udine. Udine Which is a director I really like, actually. I haven't seen a better tomorrow yet, but I actually really like Ding Sheng's uh, work, A Little Big Soldier, Railroad Tigers. I was a fan of even uh, the Police Story movie. I I quite liked it. The funny thing is, he didn't know I did the subtitles until I actually met him that day, either. Um, you. He didn't realize. Like, it got introduced by the agent, sales agent. Like, oh, yeah, Kevin, this is this guy who did the subtitles. And I actually wasn't meant to do that panel anyway. It was like, I think they wanted someone who was, um, it was just a last minute uh, switch up. And I, did, and I decided I could do it, and I did it. And yeah, I did a whole half hour, 45 minute panel just for with Ding Shen about this film. So that was that was very interesting. He's a good, nice guy, too. Very cool. Well, uh, it, uh, it pays off being uh, productive and uh, dedicated. You end up in the South China Morning Post and uh, you end up on TV and in presence of directors and what have you. So well done, guys. Proud of you. Proud of you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, that's it for this episode uh, on Fantasia. I've been Kennedy and with me was my own honorable hosts and guests, the entire roster of the East Screen, West Screen podcast, the famed East Screen, West Screen podcast, uh, which was uh, Paul Fox. So uh, say bye, buddy. Bye-bye. And with us was also Kevin Maas. Say bye, buddy. Bye, guys.